Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today I have two very special guests with me um, that I will be introducing in just a moment. Uh, but uh, today, my two guests um, are going to be interacting with a book that recently came out uh, by Brady Goodwin Jr., who is a former uh, Christian rapper who wrote a, an interesting book called Let There Be Gaslight. And before I invite my guest on, I want to kind of create some context here by reading the kind of the description of the book that's given here um, on Amazon. And perhaps that can prime your, your mind, so to speak, for the sorts of things that we're going to be covering. If you are interested in apologetics and you're interested in kind of just like how do we engage in some common objections to the Christian faith, uh, this book offers uh, a lot of those common apologetic points that I think is very useful for people to be able to interact with. So I'm very much looking forward to um, inviting my guest on in just a moment. But let me take a few moments to read uh, kind of the description here. Here's what it says. Tell one lie and you'll have to tell another. But what happens when you're caught and given the chance to come clean? Do you fess up or continue to spin new tales to cover your old tracks? As humanity's understanding of the past continues to grow through scientific and historical investigation, the world's revealed religions are having to answer tough questions about the stories they've told concerning us and God. Often, instead of acknowledging the shortcomings of a particular faith, representatives put the blame on doubting believers. This is psychological abuse, but there is another term for it. We are either being gaslighted by God or by the religions that claim to represent God. In this book, former Christian rapper, professor, and apologist Brady Goodwin Jr. explores the Christian rendition of this phenomena. And that is kind of the quick little, um, you know, uh, summary of the book. You would imagine where he might go. Uh, again, uh, he goes in multiple directions in terms of how uh, folks are being gaslighted by the revealed religions. Um, but today we're going to be covering a specific chapter in that book. Um, and I'll let my guest kind of explain the details there. Just real quick, um, this is also part of a multi-part series. I was asked by uh, my good friend Vocab Malone over there at the Street Apologist YouTube channel uh, to kind of do a video here, and I have my guests here who are, are were um, very uh, accommodating in coming onto my show to talk about this. And um, there is a multi-part series that can be located in various places, but initiated, I believe, by Vocab Malone, where they are going to give responses, video responses to all of the different chapters of this book, Let There Be Gaslight. So um, whenever I find out where you could find all those other videos, um, I will point you in that direction. Maybe my guest might even know uh, where you can go for that. Uh, but without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guests, uh, Adam Coleman and Alex McElroy. Uh, folks, um, I'm super happy to have these guys on, and I want them to kind of take a moment to tell um, you guys, uh, listeners, who they are and where you can find their content. So, Adam, why don't, why don't you go first? Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> uh, first of all, man, I just want to say I appreciate you, brother. I'm, I'm a fan of your work, man. Definitely follow the channel. I am Adam Coleman, the founder of True ID Apologetics Ministries, and I also have a YouTube channel as well that goes by that name, True ID Apologetics. as T-R-U. ID apologetics. I got true idea apologetics.com and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and essentially, I'm, I'm just like you, man. I'm an apologist out here trying to put out content to help people to work their way through objections to Christianity, come alongside folks to to think well. And uh, particularly uh, things that, that are cropping up within the African-American context, you know, mm -hmm. uh, before I uh, or as I was getting into apologetics, um, I was encountering a lot of objections to Christianity. <laughs> 
uh, that just kind of hadn't been touched on yet. So I figured I would kind of dip a toe in and address those kind of things. And so, yeah, man, that, that's me in a nutshell, man. That's awesome. So, so like for people who are in like a more urban context and the sorts of things that they find in that context is kind of different than what you find in other segments of society. Would you say that your content covers a lot of like that urban context, the sort of things that people hear in like the mm. cities and, and things like that? Yeah, sure. I think at bottom, you know, people are all dealing with the same kinds of questions, the same kinds sure. of problems. It's just to kind of give a quick example. I mean, obviously, the problem of evil is something sure. that apologists are going to deal with all the time. In other right. contexts, people might say, you know, well, why did God allow the Holocaust or why did God allow COVID-19, you know, or things like that? Well, mm -hmm. in the African-American mm -hmm. context, you tend to see the same problem of framing around questions like why did you where was Jesus during slavery? You know, sure. uh, why are black people? Uh, suffering under various forms of oppression. Like that's mm. just the same core issue, just expressed in a different way. And so we okay. bring different uh, a different vantage point to bear on, on questions like that. Is Jesus the white man's religion? Uh, you know, all, all those kinds of things we try to tackle. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, and my next guest is Alex McElroy. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? You did, actually. Thank you. Very good. <laughs> um, and he is uh, at Relentless Pursuit of Purpose. Is that the name of your channel as well? That is, yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So first, I'm glad to be here. Once again, I've, I've been a fan for a while, and so it's good to finally connect with you. Uh, so thanks for having me on. Yes, the- my pleasure. Uh, thank you. The channel is Relentless Pursuit of Purpose, but my my ministry, my apologetics ministry is called Proof for the Truth. You can go to proofforthetruth.org and um, we, we provide apologetics workshops that churches can host. It's just unrealistic, obviously, for churches to have apologists on staff. Mm -hmm. um, so we provide this this content where we come and deliver the content. A lot of times I, I focus towards youth and young adults because that's where we see the trend of them walking away. Sure. Enter this book. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so outside of that, um, you know, speaking and, and doing the videos, um, I do tend to focus a lot of my work on scientific evidence uh, as well as the historical evidence for Christianity. All right. Excellent. Well, it's a pleasure to have you both on. So let's kind of jump right into this book. So I'll let there be gaslight. Uh, we're covering chapter 12 of that book entitled Truth Versus Trust. And so, Adam, why don't you kind of share your thoughts first? What What is this chapter uh, generally about? And maybe we can kind of jump into some points of contention with the chapter that, that you have. And of course, feel free, please, to go in any direction you'd like. Um, the same for you, Alex. And, and you don't have to be polite here if you want to chime <laughs> in while Adam's talking and say, hey, Adam, I also want to add, you can feel free to, to do that as well. But, but yeah, Adam, why don't you start it, us off? For sure, good. man, for sure. So, I mean, first of all, uh, just to kind of give a bit of background, uh, Brady Goodwin, is, is he's a pretty influential guy, you know what I mean? At least in, in the circle that I would say that I kind of came up in. Sure. You know, Christian hip-hop, anybody who knows Christian hip-hop is going to be familiar with uh, the cross movement. It was, it's it's sure. got to be probably, if not, well, I'll just say it's at least one of the most iconic uh, groups to ever, you know, grip that mic, man. And, and, uh, let, it let it good never, Christian rap as opposed to good, like some hey, bad Christian music. <laughs> real yeah. right. Hey man, listen, I, I you know, grab well, your Bible. I, I'm trying to be nice. You know what I mean? But, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, I, I would say that, uh, some of the philosophy that we're going to come go, uh, go over is pretty sketchy, but, but let it not be said. The, the man is, is cold on that mic. There's no doubt, doubt about that. Yeah. You know he's nice on the mic. And so I personally, I, I was definitely a fan of fanatic as many of us were, uh, but that being said, man, um, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate that he's now uh, denounced the faith, you know what I'm saying, mm -hmm. to, to say the least, and, and adamantly so, um, which I'm sure is probably shocking to 
just about everybody. You know what I mean? When I found out, I was like, man, I felt like my dog died or something like that. It's like, oh man, you know, it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, but he's denounced the faith, and um, at very least, he appears to be a very strong agnostic. You know, seems to be uh, more atheistic leaning as, as far as I as as, sure. as as far as I can estimate. Uh, but you know, at very least, I would say is a strong agnostic. And so this this book is supposed to be the fruit of his um, labors, if you will, <laughs> laboring away from the gospel. You know what sure, I mean? Sure. Um, and so the first, uh, like you said, we're going to be dealing with chapter 12, which really is kind of like the punchline of the whole book, really. You know what I'm saying? At least the first punchline. You know, the first 11 chapters really spend a lot of time. Uh, as a matter of fact, if, if I could, I'm going to share my screen. That's cool. Sure. Yeah, that's we, all right. We get, get it popping now. You know, let me see. Here. I got it there in the chat. There we go. Okay. Cool. So uh, shameless plug, true idea apologetics. <laughs> yeah, no, fine. Hey. Um, try to, oh, okay, here we go. Yeah, so kind of have it here. Like the first uh, 11 chapters are really dealing with this idea that that somehow Genesis has been debunked, essentially. You know, particularly its account of uh, human origins. You know, so he's essentially trying to establish in chapters, you know, one through one through 11, that the Genesis account is best understood um, when interpreted literally, that's what the authors intended, and that's how we ought to approach it. Um, he would say, unfortunately, well, actually, I guess he wouldn't say unfortunately, but he, he would say that uh, the evidence, uh, the scientific evidence for for the theory of evolution is is, is so strong, such that um, we ought to take it seriously and, and confirm it to be true. And in so much as the literal reading of Genesis cannot accommodate uh, the theory of evolution. Um, the Genesis account is therefore falsified. That's kind of how he's coming at it. And so he takes it a step further to suggest that if um, Genesis is falsified, uh, particularly, again, you know, the uh, account of human origins, um, and you have Jesus and the Apostle Paul, for example, figures in the New Testament quoting sure. uh, Genesis uh, as, as historical, then therefore they, they're also falsified. Like, you know, claims that they make about uh, like human depravity and human origins and so on and so forth. Those things are falsified. Therefore, Jesus and Paul are not reliable uh, sources of information. Sure. And so he believes that he's um, essentially done away with the whole Bible beginning uh, with the starting point of Genesis being uh, being false. You know, mm. And so that's kind of what, what you have in slides, uh, excuse me, uh, chapters one through 11. And then yeah. in chapter 12, we see this statement here. This is a quote from page 276. He says, after considering the preceding chapters, we must ask what implications does all of this have for the core beliefs of the Christian faith and any religious worldview based upon the Judeo-Christian tradition? There are at least four pathways forward. And he's going to lay out um, what he believes to be uh, uh, four paths, basically four options that we have in light of this notion that uh, Genesis has been debunked. And so sure. I kind of pause there. I know we'll get into some of these options here in a second, but essentially yeah. that's kind of what you've got working your way up to uh chapter 12. you want to say something there alex or yeah so let me uh if i could share one quick so we're still kind of laying the groundwork um oops sorry so like adam said there's a lot if if you read the book and and actually another shameless plug if uh if, it, if you haven't subscribed to my channel already please do i'm, I'm debunking chapter two this thursday um in that chapter is titled has god said and as adam said he's basically using a flawed hermeneutic to get to the conclusion Bible, um, which even the most atheist that, you know, there, there's, there's some other methods and, and, um, 
everybody about about how we arrive at truth. But because my organization is called Proof for the Truth, I'm very concerned with truth and how we arrive at it. Sure. And so I, I I care less if somebody disagrees or has a different worldview than if they're jacking up how we arrive at truth, because because you're not even playing by the same rules at that point. So your epistemology, your all these things have to be in order, not because I say so, just because of the rules of logic and philosophy go that way. And so I want to start with these definitions because I think throughout the whole book, he kind of does this uh, straw man attack on faith, especially when we talk about what biblical faith is and what he's trying to allude uh, to it being. Real quick before I put that slide up, it's, it is interesting that this, this gentleman, because I don't think uh, Adam shared this part, he was in seminary. He's been saying he's doing apologetics for 20 years, sure. which, you know, that's debatable. But he's, he's, he's at least been familiar with all this information. Sure. So to arrive at this conclusion, it's like, what, what were you doing for you? Because this isn't new stuff. <laughs> it's not new information that he suddenly discovered right. and brought. And now he's like, oh, I'm waking. There's something else going on. I don't know what it is, but just keep praying for him. So, uh, yeah, if you have, uh, Eli, if you're able to share my. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, hey, can I just second that right quick? You know, why, why, yep. you know that you made a point. I mean, again, no, uh, I gotta, I'm sorry. Did I got the, take my I have the wrong slides? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I see. Um, okay, my bad. Woo, there we go. No, you good. You just real quick. I just want to second that. Like, yep. you know, a lot of what I have to say might seem like nitpicking, mm -hmm. but in the context of what Alice just said, I mean, we're dealing with a guy who said that he's been in the faith for like 30 years and like 20, yep. 25 of those he's been, um, you know, into apologetics. He has taught apologetics, I believe, at the collegiate level. I think it was at a, at a, at a local college. So, you know, once you present yourself that way, when you present yourself as having some, you know, uh, acquaintance with the, with the uh, with the subject matter, mm -hmm. like we, we got to treat you at a, at a different level. I mean, we can't, yeah. you know, patty cake. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's that's where nuance <laughs> becomes very important. So yeah. I'm just Absolutely. throwing it out there as a little. <laughs> just, just if I could add something too, yeah. this whole thing with science conflicting with Genesis. And this is not even like a, not only is it um, kind of an old hat for anyone who does apologetics, just philosophically and scientifically, I think science uh, to rely so much on the interpretations of the data from specific scientists to dance with science. It's important to understand that science is a very fickle dance partner. Um, I believe it was the atheist agnostic cosmologist, Sean Carroll, who said that science is not a truth-finding discipline, but rather science provides us theories that work so that it's a, it's a pragmatic discipline. You don't get an absolute truth, and that's why science, and this is a good feature of science, that's why science always changes uh, because as we come to, to learn more things and stuff. So to say that like, you know, science seems to be against Genesis, therefore eh, we should go with science and not you know, the Bible or something along those lines. I think that's a very a superficial way of, of coming at it. But those are yeah. just my thoughts there. No, yeah, to your point, science yeah, is always provisional. You know what I'm saying? It's always provisional. Right. And so you have to be careful. Yeah, got you. Right. Yeah. And so at the beginning, in the forewarning, he, he says, faith is a temporary bridge of unbelief. I'm sorry, of belief between the known and the unknown. Like, right? Like, we haven't even gotten to page oh, wait, time out. I got to stop you right there, bro. Okay. <laughs> I haven't read all of chapter 12, and I did not read that. That is... The most no. loaded definition of faith is not. Oh, even yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's not back. even in chapter 12. That's in the introduction. <laughs> oh, OK. That's, wow, that's loaded. OK, it is ahead. loaded. Right. And and inaccurate. Um, okay. And then he says on page 278. But why did I believe in God in the first place? Did I skip over logic and arrive at faith? 
So what you see, the straw man is, is logic versus faith, religion versus right. faith, science versus faith. Simply because of a mind numbing yet heart stirring message. Um, it's tempting to think that this is what God wants from us, that we should distrust our five senses and our minds and only use faith as our epistemology, in which case the only things we can know to be true is whatever God tells us in the Bible or in our souls, if this practice can be trusted. And then he also says, because it is faith that counteracts the unbelief in our hearts. Okay. Once again, I like I don't know. Well, Christians who have thought things these things through, I don't know any of them who would who would affirm any any of these these statements and so right. when we say faith biblically um we're talking about trust the bible's talking about trust the bible's never talking about blind faith right and once again this is really like when i, I used to be a youth pastor and when i would teach kids they got that they understood it wasn't supposed to be blind i'm supposed to understand what i believe why i believe it and what is it. so it's weird for him to come to this conclusion now uh, 20 plus years into this, but we're not talking about um, this version of faith that he's putting forth, but no one, including God in the Bible, suggesting that him or any Christian should believe the gospel without it being true or without justification, mm -hmm. which I'm sure we'll get into. Can I ask a question though? Yes. So what educational background does he have and at what level you said he taught at the collegiate level? I'm curious because I'm not aware of any Christian scholar or theologian who would define faith that way, I'm wondering how could he teach at, at a collegiate level and then use this very superficial and really unchristian way of defining faith? It's great. Do you question. know any back? Do you know of his educational background? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not aware of his background. Yeah. So I, I know that. Um, I, I believe he went to Lancaster. I believe. I think he. I, I feel okay. like he graduated from Lancaster, and he also attended. I know he attended at Westminster. I'm not sure if he mm -hmm. uh, completed. You know whatever education he I was, know Westminster uh, wouldn't yeah. define faith that way for sure. No, nah, yeah, it's very strange, yeah. you know. And yeah. but see, to, to your point though, and and um, I think I'm glad you picked up on that. That I feel like throughout um, the chapter, not just this chapter, but I've also looked into chapter 13 and others as well. Uh, you, you find these very, idi very idiosyncratic or just off base definitions, you mm -hmm. know. And you, you guys know that when you're talking about philosophy, it's it's really all about precision of language. And if you don't get the, the definitions right, if you, if you don't have tenable definitions, then you find yourself making really egregious mistakes later on down the road. Like your definitions yeah. are going to be kind of the, the building blocks, if you will. Uh, and it just helps with like conceptual clarity, like keeping the lines clear in terms of, you know, being able to say what you mean and, yeah. and make coherent statements. And so I, th I think that, you know, again, you know, we're, we're not dealing with some just random dude, you know what I mean? Like he, sure. he's, he's, He's graduated from some, from seminary, I believe, or, or at least he has a degree in something, you know, and yeah. attended at Westminster and has claimed that he, he's, you know, acquainted with these kinds of things. So it's, it's mm -hmm. really odd to see these these very elementary missteps, you know, sure. at various points in, in, in his work. Yeah. Alex, can you can you unpack for us the biblical definition of faith one more time? Uh, because I think that's an important key thing um, where he says here, faith is a temporary bridge of belief between the known and the unknown. Mm -hmm. that i mean that's not <laughs> biblical no. why is that not the correct definition of faith a christian should be operating on and maybe you can unpack the biblical definition in a little yeah. bit more detail sure and, and and we can go around but i would say um faith is trust in god so it's trust it's the belief we, we're going to talk about i guess justified true belief in a second but mm -hmm. we are saying that that Greek word pistis that we have full trust 
in the person and personhood of, of Christ and in the gospel message, not because we don't have warrant or justification to have that trust, mm -hmm. but based on the justification we have now, some would say, okay, well, that's not enough evidence for me. Okay, that's you. But you can't say this is still not a properly basic belief mm -hmm. if we have enough justification to warrant that belief. And so I would also talk about, not right now, but external historical archaeological evidences, not that those are primary, but those co-sign the trust that we have in God and in his, in his personhood. Mm -hmm. So when you further nuance justification, I know this is a long answer, but when That's you okay. further nuance justification and we get into all the big words, doxastic and propositional. Watch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Young people watch this show. What's wrong with you, bro? <laughs> but the, the amazing thing is Christianity is the only worldview that meets every test of justification. So if you're whatever kind you like, we got it. And that's that's further evidence for the validity or the truth okay. of this worldview, not against it. And okay. so he almost had to really turn off every like he had to turn off a lot of his brain mm -hmm. to get to that definition, which is ironic because he would say he turned on all of his brain to get all that. Definition. Right, right. Now, now that's not to say and I know that people who watch this be like, listen, it's because he was thinking about these things. He's been a Christian a long time. And he's thought about these things. Hey, that's not impossible. It's not impossible for someone to be a Christian for a long time, really think about these things and have rigorous responses. I mean, obviously, as Christians, we'll want to have counterpoints. But this definition of faith is so haphazard, so illegitimate in terms of what any Christian would say. It really causes me to think, well, how hard was he thinking? Mm. Number one. And number two, maybe he was thinking hard and got really bad theological education. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. Yeah. Um, again, I have to repeat, no Christian would define faith in that way, at least in terms of what the Bible says. Right. Um, so I think that's just just odd. Yeah. And, and real quick, in, in, uh, just in terms of what you just said, it's not mm -hmm. just, OK, well, the Bible says it and we believe it and, and he didn't right. give us the biblical definition. Right. I think really at the heart of what you're saying is if you take the biblical authors in terms of how they're using the term faith. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether you whether you agree with them or not, whether you believe the Bible or not, regardless, like in terms of you, you can't essentially put words in their mouth in terms of what they mean when right. they use the word faith, and that and that's right. essentially what we see him see him right. doing. You know, it's it's yeah. definitely a strong man. Yeah, okay, sure. so Alex, this is your presentation here. Are there any uh, points you want to kind of move forward from? Okay, so he has a he has a really bad definition yeah. of faith that kind of already you know muddies the water. Uh, right. Where do you want to go from here in terms well, of? I'll just keep with the next couple slides, and I'll let Adam piggyback off those sure. and um. But but that's, I think what you just said is really important because it's it's like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? If you're if you're built on a faulty foundation, whatever you build from that point is always mm. going to be off. Sure, it's just like you're on a boat, you get one degree off course, and then you know ten miles later you're way off course. So literally in the introduction and in the forewarning, that's how he defined faith. There's nowhere to go but down from there, <laughs> and right. you know that's the unfortunate reality of how that goes. So, um. Yeah, let me move to the next one. All right, so he has this this kind of little story he runs through. Uh, he says, I can still remember the very first time I waded into these deep philosophical waters. I was around eight or nine years old, riding across town on a city bus with my, when my, with my mother. When I confess, sometimes I feel like other people's lives aren't real. Like life is a play about me and other people are just acting in it. 
He says, what I was really doing was expressing an epistemological view that says, if I can't verify the reality of other minds or the sensory perception that others experience, how do I know or validate my belief that other people are real, as real as I am? When I stop paying attention to them, how do I know that their stories continue? I only know uh, my own sensory perception, my own mind, and I can only continuously follow my own story. Therefore, I can only verify that I am real. I am the only one whose experiences I can validate. He says, was this a, a, a logical way of thinking? It was. We'll come back to that. If logical can describe the conclusions that naturally follow a given premise. And um, I don't really need to read the rest of it, but obviously it was not a logical conclusion because it's not a true conclusion. And when I say logical, I'm saying within the confines of you know justified true belief, you cannot have knowledge of a non-true thing. Right. So truth, truth is a necessary ingredient for something to be knowledge. Exactly. Right. So right. Right. it's not a logical. So the funny thing, not the funny thing even. So in his own example, he fails his own test. And to me, I'm like, why would you put that in a book? Why, why would you call something logical that's not logical and use this whole explanation to get to that point when where you dropped us off at is an illogical conclusion? Yeah. Can you go back to the that neck, that previous slide? I mean, yeah. What is he describing there? If we can't verify what other people exist, it seems like he's suggesting that it's logical he, to affirm solipsism. solipsism. He does refer to it later that on. You're the yeah. only person that exists. I mean, how is that? How is that logical? That's a, yeah. And funny. So with that, this is once again, most people already already did recognize this. This is not new. This is this is Cartesian. Sure. Um, I'll just read a real quick uh, summary from. Uh, Journal, Journal of Modern Theology, Journey of Modern Theology. So if you don't know the story, I won't read all that, but Descartes, he's in a room, he's trying to think, what does he really know? He gets down to this idea. So it says, he bore in, dug out, dug down into all he knew, doubting everything until he realized there was one thing he could not doubt, his own existence. Mm -hmm. And this way, Descartes became one of those rare figures in history who's given us the world, a sentence as a touchdown, cogito ergo sum, which is, I think, therefore I am. In other words, Descartes could not doubt his own existence as a thinking self because in order to doubt, he had to think, and in order to think, he had to exist. But here's the thing. Descartes deduced the logically necessary existence of God. So Descartes didn't take his own understanding to the conclusion that Mr. Goodwin took it to, which is an illogical conclusion from that premise. Mm which even the man who originated the proposition thought of himself, that that's not where this, can, this should end. There's still a necessity for God in the paradigm for any of this to even ma matter or work. And so even when he's kind of taking other people's arguments, he doesn't fully vet them or, or take them to their own logical conclusion. Like Adam said, we can't put words in the apostle's mouth or even Descartes. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, if you start with the well, I mean, I have criticisms of Descartes, but the but no, the thrust of what, <laughs> the th uh, I don't think you can literally doubt everything. I think that's impossible. No. But um, I think the point of what you're saying is that Descartes starts with the self. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Goodwin starts with the self, and they come to completely different conclusions as to what that implies, uh, showing that it's not as clear as as uh, Goodwin thinks. Right. By the way, if you're wondering who I'm talking about and you're just kind of coming in, we're talking about the former Christian rapper Fanatic. He was associated with the cross movement, and now he is, identifies as a, an agnostic or an atheist, I believe. Is that what you said towards the beginning there? So that's who we're talking about here. A couple of people uh, 
uh, asking. Uh, there was a yeah. funny quote here. Uh, solipsism. If, if solipsism is the view he's suggesting, again, I haven't personally read, read the whole book. I, re I read portions of the chapter we're addressing. But Chris Bolt, who is a, an apologist, a friend of mine, uh, he said he wrote a book to tell other other people he is a solipsist. <laughs> Which, of <laughs> well, course, he, he does back away from it at a, at a different point. Right. Most people, yeah, still, most people yeah. do, yeah. but it's kind of the back pocket. Ultimately, right, we, right. we can't know, right? <laughs> right, um, right? And then they try to sneak in things that we should believe anyway, in spite of the fact that we possibly couldn't know those things anyway. Um, but <laughs> I want, can I chime in on that logic piece for a yeah, second? Yeah. I, I have a slide, uh, oh, a couple that, that ones, um, I think that I think really emphasizes uh, Alex's point, mm -hmm. if I could, let me just skip over there. So, uh, and again, this just gets into, um, where are we at? Oh, here we go. Yeah, this, this kind of gets back to what we're talking about as far as definitions and how you can get off to a bad start essentially right. by having wrong definitions. This is, this is actually how he defines logic right here. You know, he says that logic can be, can be defined as the mind faithfully mapping itself onto the external world, the mind faithfully mapping itself onto the external world. You know, mm -hmm. now I put in, in uh, you know, some asterisks here, some of the key words, because first of all, uh, when he says the mind, you know, he, he makes uh, logic mind dependent. And I think that's very interesting because, you know, if, if that is the case, then, I mean, um, obviously human minds can't be that which the neurologic depends upon. Right? If, so you're if gonna have you to go that them. route, you've just relativized logic in a way that's very <laughs> self-vitiating. But go ahead. Right. And then he says that, you know, it's something that faithfully the mind is uh, faithfully mapping itself onto the external world, you know, mm. which I find interesting because, you um, I think you run into some problems there as well. Like, what what about uh, mental experience? Like, like, can I know without sensory experience? Can I know that one of my thoughts is occurring before the other, mm. or that can I can I know that a proposition in my mind logically entails a, a proposition that follows from it? You know, th right. things like that. So this notion that somehow logic is is at least in some sense grounded or or must have as its object the ex external world. I think it's very problematic, and and I think that you that philosophers would, would really you know, take issue with that as well. But right. it, you know what, what makes matters worse is um, in in chapter thirteen, um, he goes into it further. Actually, I'm, I'm going to stay here for a second. This is a, another quote from here, and forgive me for being a long quote. I'll try to read no, it as quickly it. as I can. Yeah. But he says, "Can anyone deny that logic is simply the name we have given to the exercise of trying to think?" speak and act in accordance with the material world Ooh, around I us. could deny it I could deny it <laughs> <laughs> can anyone deny it yes yes I I it. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right uh, it says you know whenever we think speak or act out of alignment with the, the nature of the external world we encounter it can be said that we are being illogical and we could say that logic is universal listen to this and we could say that logic is quote universal to the extent that this matter you talking about the material world maintains the same properties and characteristics wherever it can be found in the universe so what? logic that's is contingent upon assumption geez that's wild that's that's really yeah. wild right so so that's, logic yeah. is the is is essentially like the material consistency sure. throughout the universe it says but if these characteristics change uh for example then what was uh for example in, with quantum physics then what was previously thought to be illogical might become logical at the very least, a different logic will be needed to properly map onto the different reality. It, is it true then that there could be no laws of logic without God, and specifically the God of the Bible? Uh, only if it is true that there could be no material world without God, 
and we have already addressed this above unless uh, or until God steps forward to make a believable claim concerning the creation of the universe, what reason do we have to think that the only possible cause for a matter and logic is a personal God? Lastly, uh, it says on the next page, if it can be argued that human logic is not necessarily a reflection of God's mind, but instead refers to the mind of mankind mapping itself onto the natural world, the question can still be asked, what about the mind and consciousness? And he goes into you know critique you know the argument from consciousness. Yeah. Huge problems there in terms yeah. of how he defined too many to address in your previous month the long the longer quote. There are a lot of philosophical assumptions that are baked into mm -hmm. everything there that I think is open to criticism. But uh, yeah. what, what direction do you want to go? Where where were you thinking in terms of interacting with that? Well, I just want to give a quick counterexample. You know, okay. again, I take issue with this notion that uh, logic is to be relegated to just being mapped onto the external world, you know, okay. the physical universe, he, the, as he indicates. So first of all, let's imagine that you have um, a self, you know what I'm saying? Let's say you imagine somebody is, is born with for whatever reason, they have no sensory perception whatsoever. You know what I'm saying they, they have no access to the physical world through their five senses, right? Now, um, the right. nature of consciousness is that when we engage in consciousness, we are we are self-aware. You know, we have direct access to the self, right? I have access to the external world via my senses, and then kind of you know uh, interpreted through um, my internal self. But I don't know myself in that way. You know, what I'm saying I don't know my knowledge of self is not mediated by some other thing. I know it directly, right? Now, um, if you can have direct knowledge of yourself. There are some logical truths that flow from that. First of all, mm -hmm. I can have direct awareness um, uh, in terms of just my mental life that I am I am identical to me, right? I know that I am myself. I am me. I am not, you know, some other entity, even if I had no language to describe it. That's number one. Mm -hmm. So already, if I know that I'm identical to myself, uh, then now I've encountered the law of identity. You know, one of the basic laws of log logic that everything is identical to itself. I've encountered some, some uh, shade of that. I could also know that I myself am, am a numerical single. I, I'm, a, I'm a singular entity rather than a multiplicity of cells. I can, I can sense through direct awareness of my mental states that I'm a, I am a, uh, a single self. And so now if I can have direct sense, you know, that I am a single entity, Mathematics comes into play because I can, you know, adjust I can imagine there being a multiplicity of other beings versus me just being a singular. And so now I've got access to mathematical truths, right? So even without sensory perception, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that you can still have access just through internal reflection uh, about one's self-awareness, and then that yields certain truths such as the law of identity, uh, you know, uh, laws of logic rather, and mathematical truths. So mm -hmm. is it the case that logic is necessarily tied to the external world? No, obviously not, <laughs> because we don't have to have access to the external world um, in order to to access those kinds of truths. I'm saying those kind of logical truths. Last thing I'll say about that. Again, I'm going to go back to his definition. He talks about the, the mind faithfully mapping itself onto the external world. And in the other quote I showed, he talked about this. He's referring to uh, human minds. Um, the reality is, you know, before there were any humans around. Um, clearly it was the case that let's say the planet earth could not be earth and Jupiter in the same way at the same time. You see, that's, that's logically incoherent, right? Oh, okay. The presence of physical minds, um, excuse me, human minds rather, uh, is not necessary for that truth to obtain. Right. Mm -hmm. But if he believes, you know, um, I, I think that's kind of 
you know, par for the course. I don't think it's all that deep to understand. You know what I mean? <laughs> but if he believes that that logic must be mind dependent, and you, we have fundamental truths that, that like that, you know, that are that are true regardless of whether human minds or not, then it's rational then to look for another mind, right? It's rational then to say, well, these truths must be grounded in a mind that can account for these truths and that that, are, that occur in every possible world. And you know, to kind of keep right. it snippet fashion, can, can they account for the universality? Be, can can logic needs to uh, be grounded? Its universal nature needs to be grounded in a right. foundation that can ground something like a universal concept right, right. like the laws of logic yeah right. alex now uh why don't you chime in a little bit here do you want to piggyback on anything yeah of anything that adam said or maybe add uh some yeah got just not much but but basically and i think somebody put this in the comments too and, and adam kind of hit it that it once again the definition is problematic for a lot of reasons and really it's hard to talk about logic without talking about the rules of logic at least the three foundational ones right. that adam kind of demonstrated the law of non-contradiction but whenever I talk to somebody who presents this uh, faulty paradigm regarding logic, I just ask, okay, if there were no humans ever existing on earth, would the law of non-contradiction still be a valid law? And it would be, it doesn't matter if we're, if there's sentient beating beings around to be able to recognize that law, the law sustains in and of itself. And so the laws of logic, are not contingent on us, um, nor are they contingent to the external world, nor nor is um, our mind, as, as Adam said, solely contingent to the external world. So there's a lot of assumptions, and I, and, I, and I think this is important to talk about because, you know, we're here talking about this, but I think a lot of people who read that book, and if they're not well-versed in, in all these different um, lanes of philosophy, they may be led astray because he, he sounds good. It sounds like a good case. It sounds convincing, big words included. So, you know, it can it can throw some people off. Um, but understanding that the the laws of logic exist and describe certain components of reality, but you don't have to know the law of non-contradiction to be bound by it. Right. A baby's bound by it. It doesn't mean that they that they know that law or they know that that part of logic. That's not a pre-requirement. That's because, as you said, Eli, the laws of logic supersede or transcend us. And if we're going to say these laws transcend us, then we have to ground that transcendence. And if you remove God from the picture, obviously we're left in, with our feet in midair. So right. that's where he left us. <laughs> if I wanted All to be, right. I could even say that that uh, the animals understand. You're saying certain laws of logic, at least they function according to it anyway. You said that it depends on mankind mapping on a reality, but I think an orangutan can can ascertain certain truths about what to eat and what not to eat and, and things like that. So uh, there's so many different different ways that it goes wrong, man. You know I mean? But again, I just want to kind of highlight this. This is just one of those examples. Like when I see basic mistakes like this, then I think that, um, that that's when I begin to lose confidence, you know, in the person who's putting forth the case. I'm like, yeah, there's something wrong here. Um, in, in the and I, yeah. I think, I think oh, challenging sorry. definitions are so important too. I mean, uh, look how, I mean, this just popped. Logic can be defined. Mm -hmm. Okay. Logic yeah. can also be defined as that which reflects <laughs> the mind of God. So which definition are we, if you right, talk about right. how words can be defined, I want to know what logic is. Right, uh, right, right. So challenging definitions, I think are, is super important, but go ahead, Alex. I think I spoke. No, no, that. no. That's, that's an excellent point. And, and maybe he was living, leaving himself a loophole. I don't know, but um i suspect he's probably trying to be cautious because he, mm. he 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 frames things that like that a lot throughout the book 
but I think the problem is, you know, when when you're there's nothing wrong with being cautious, but at the same time, um, he's still presenting that these things as if this is such as such and such is the case. You know what I mean? So I kind of it's this balance between being cautious and, and say what you mean, bro. I mean, like <laughs> you're saying that's what it is. All right, cool. Let's yeah, work on it. Let's work from yeah, there. Yeah, you know what I mean? No. Well, right, right. Kind of to to everyone's point, the like I said, I like doing a lot of work on the scientific evidence, but it's not because I think that that supersedes everything else. I just think that people have a misunderstanding of a supposed disagreement between the two. But in in, in this, while we're talking about it, like it's, it's very clear, even as you said, amongst many scientists, that science can't tell us everything. Um, and, and specifically with regards to uh, some of the claims that Mr. Goodwin made, like science presupposes, we're talking about logic, logical truths and mathematical truths. It doesn't necessarily give us those things. Um, metaphysical truths, which is ironically one of the things is knowing that there are other minds but other than mine is a metaphysical truth that usually most people are pretty okay with. Um, ethical beliefs, aesthetic beliefs, um, none of these things are validated by science. In fact, science can't even validate science. So there, there's a, there's things that are assumed, the speed of light, all these things that are taken for granted within the confines of different scientific disciplines, but they are taking these things for which they can't actually prove them, but they're just assuming that the, the, they will be constant enough. And, and I'll go back one step further. All of the or all of the scientists that um, started their sciences were Christians because they expected order in nature, which would allow them to do their science. We talk about Newton. We talk about whoever physics, um, you know, astrophysics, chemistry, biology, whatever it is. So a little bit of research would help them understand that, no, science actually exists because people recognize the existence of God, not the not the opposite. Right. I also think it's important to keep in mind when someone says, well, science uh, often says things that are in conflict with the with Christianity. And so Christians need to answer tough questions. Yeah. Uh, that understanding, I think, is is wrongheaded, as some other apologists have pointed out and some philosophers have pointed out that science doesn't speak. <laughs> right. Uh, it, science is not in conflict with Christianity, particular interpretations of the data. Uh, that are engaged in those for those who are engaged in the scientific enterprise, their interpretations can be in conflict with Christianity. But science as a method of investigating the natural world is completely consistent with a Christian outlook. And indeed, it's based on a Christian outlook, I would argue. Um, so I, I want to make that distinction for, for folks. Science doesn't speak. Scientists do. And scientists have their own worldviews, their own bias, their own blind spots. And so we need to ask the question, who is interpreting the data correctly when they're engaging in the, the method of, of science? I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. And on that quote, uh, can you put my slides back up real quick, Eli? Yes, There's sir. One. Let me just get and then I'm going to turn it back to Adam. So, uh, nope. Sorry. Hey, while you're looking for that, just, just real quick, somebody asked the question, um, are we going to be dealing with the, the Genesis critiques? Oh, yeah. And uh, they may have missed it, but um, like uh, Brother Eli said, that this this uh, live stream that we're doing here is actually part of a multi-episode, um, if you will, stream, you know, kind of you know, a series rather. And yeah. our brother BK Apologist um, at the YouTube channel, BK Apologist, they just did a, a excellent job yesterday addressing uh, some of Brady's critiques. So I would I would uh, commend one. to you. 
Yeah, no, chapter one, I recommend that to you. Now, will Vocab have all of these videos in like a playlist on his channel or how's that work? I believe so. I think yes. he's either him or BK Apologies, I believe, right. are going to compile it all together and then, like I said, put it as a playlist. Excellent. So Excellent. And yeah. uh, I think it was Sean who asked that. And um, I'll be doing, like I said, chapter two this Thursday. Um, it'll deal with, you know, defending the Bible, but also kind of debunking this science versus faith argument as well, as well that he kind of makes in there. But this gentleman is John Lennox, who's a mathematician, a scientist, a Christian. He said the success of science sometimes leads people to think that because we can understand the mechanisms of the universe, then we can safely conclude that there was no God who designed and created the universe in the first place. Now, this reasoning commits a logical error and that it confuses mechanism and agency. Right. So if somebody says, um, um, well, I know how the car works. I know how a car works. So therefore, Henry Ford never existed. Right. No, <laughs> uh, two things can be true at the same time. And, you know, a lot of the science versus faith debate gets bogged down into a misunderstanding of this very point that you said, Eli, that people are misunderstanding the uh, the reaches that science can have and their misunderstanding that science never says anything. Scientists say something about the science they're doing. Right. All right. Very good. Yeah. Um, let's see here. So that was, that was John Lennox. I mean, those quotes like that can be reproduced all over the place. I think the, the generic understanding that science is in conflict with faith is I think very superficial mm. and has easily been debunked, not just by Christians, but many non-Christians who would, who would say, yeah, it's not inconsistent. We just happen to disagree with the Christian interpretation of the data, you know? Um, yep. so this isn't even a sticking point. That's what I'm saying. These are very, Again, I haven't read the whole book, but these are these seem to be very superficial. Um, and again, right. I don't mean that disrespectfully. I'm no. sure there are many right. atheists who can come with much right. more fuller and robust um, objections against Christianity. But these seem very superficial in terms of, of um, the depths with yeah. which he's uh, engaging Christianity and its relationship with science. If I could, man, I just wanted to deal with like one more. I got at least one more definition I want to address that I feel like it is kind of pivotal to what we'll talk about later. And um, I know we want to get to those four options that he laid out for the Christian. I know we definitely want to touch on that. But um, mm -hmm. if I could just kind of add this to the screen. Yeah, yeah, sure. You and your slides, man. What's up with that? No, oh, I got man. I'm, I'm learning from uh, my man BK. Apologies, man. I got slides for days now. I'm getting my hey, slides. slides that's, up, you know what I mean? Can never have too much. Can never have too many slides. Right, 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 right. Um, so he, he deals with this issue of belief, right? Um, he, he lays out his definitions, um, and among them, he lays out this definition here of belief. He says that. Belief is trust that a particular understanding of reality can be verified or will be justified. Um, but <laughs> it's wow. And, and in, in another place, and I should have made it more clear here. So I yeah. guess I would have to cut it after the word um, justified. But it's actually a separate quote where he says, then what we are willing to accept as reality without confirmation. And he puts in parentheses belief. So essentially, you have this notion that belief is understand and understanding of reality that, you know, I'm sorry, trust that a particular understanding of reality can be verified or will or will be justified. And in a separate place, you know, he equates it with um, accepting something as reality without confirmation, you know. And um, again, again, <laughs> these these definitions are killing me, bro. Like, yeah, I mean, they sound off when I read it. I'm kind of like, well, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound right. Well, it's so idiotic. You know. I mean, here's the thing. First of all, you, you know, uh, I. I he, he quoted Stanford Encyclopedia and is de, uh, defining something else. And so I, mm -hmm. I decided to put it 
here, you know, when it, it reference to how it defines beliefs as contemporary Anglophone philosophers of mine generally use the term belief to refer to the attitude we have roughly whenever we take something to be the case or regard it as true. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is, this is this notion of a propositional attitude. So if you have a proposition, say, you know, it's raining outside. I, my attitude toward that proposition can be that I take it to be the case that is raining outside or I don't take it to the case to be raining outside. That's mm-hmm. essentially what it is when we're talking about belief and disbelief. Right. right. Um, at least at least in this basic sense. Now, I don't belief proper. You know, I'm saying just you know, it, it doesn't entail that I have to also trust that it can be verified, you know, or that it will be justified. I can believe things for which maybe we have, there's no way that it can be verified or justified, but I can still take it to be the case that it is true. You know what I'm saying? Um, When it comes to this notion of it being without confirmation, I mean, I could have uh, levels of confirmation of a belief for which I believe that something is more likely than not to be the case, but maybe I don't have certainty about it. You know, maybe I believe that it's raining outside because, you know, my wife walked in 20 minutes ago and she was, you know, totally drenched in water. But in reality, my son, my eight year old squirted her with a, with a water hose, which that's a very real possibility. My son <laughs> do crazy stuff. You know what I mean? It's but, entirely like, you know, too. it's entirely like it. Right. So I might believe, you know, um, and I may have and maybe it was raining earlier. So I, maybe I have some sort of confirmation, but I may not have certainty, you know. And so I think that um, his definitions, again, they leave room for some skepticism in terms of where he's right. coming from. And uh, it gets even worse, unfortunately. I'll, I'll make this quick. But um, he has this really strange quote, you know, where he says, but how does one know if what he or she understands, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, is the truth? Right. Aren't people of faith, Christians included, operating at the level of belief? Right. So now he's making a distinction. He said, we're not, he's suggesting we're not operating the level of truth. We're operating at belief, you know, something lesser than truth. Right. He says, Jesus reportedly claimed to be the truth, but also called others to believe in him. You know, uh, the author of John, excuse me, first John 5 13 says, Have I written, I have written all these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know what you have, uh, that you have eternal life. This raises the question at what point can we say that we have knowledge? Um, and not just um, that we believe. Now, I got some things I want to say about that. I don't know if you guys want to jump in now, or, or but I, I got a few things I want to want to say about that. Um, there are a couple of things I could say, but Alex, if you feel free to jump in as as you're my guest, you're quiet. You're quiet <laughs> down there. It's all right. I know I was reading a while, so I just want to give you guys. Yeah, no, 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 it's good. Well, I, I saw this in the book too, and once again, the first thought was this is a straw man between truth and belief again, and I mean, he's just it's sloppy, you know, when you really dig in, um, that that's the one part. And then, you know, (laughs) we could, we could rephrase John. We don't need to, but we could say, you know, I've written all, I've written about all these evidences so that you can believe like you're, you're, you're taking the words totally away from what he was trying to say. So John just wrote 21 chapters and he's trying to convince people with evidences about Jesus and about who Jesus is. It's not, he's not saying, hey, I wrote all this. Now turn off your brain and just believe because I said so. Like, that's not what he's saying. And no one could read it and say that's what he's trying to do. Now, if that's exactly. if that's your later interpretation, but you can't, it's intellectually dishonest to assume that's what John or any of the apostles was trying to do. Well, and now here's the thing about it too. And, and, and that actually leads to my point because what he's tried to do is to center on like propositional beliefs. You know what I'm saying? That, that something is the case or that something is true. 
And he's saying that we don't have that. You know, we're not operating at the level of, of truth. But first of all, you know, and, and you brought this up earlier, um, uh, you know, Eli, you can't have knowledge of anything. You can't have knowledge of the truth if, if you don't believe it. <laughs> like, right. you know, there are certain there are pieces to uh, to to knowledge that are just kind of indispensable. So like if I say if I have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but no jelly. I don't have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, you know, likewise. What if, what, if, what if the peanut butter identifies as <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, all right, all right. Touche. You know, hey, it is, it is 2022. Anything is possible. Anything is possible, bro. Anything is possible. You know. Oh man. Uh, but but I want to go back to what he says. He says, so, but how does I'm sorry, but how does one know if he had if he or she understands, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, is the truth? Aren't people of faith um Christians included operating at the level of belief. Well, here's the thing. In so much as we believe what is true, we're operating at the level of truth, right? If you right. believe well, that's something that's true. Too. He seems to be suggesting here, aren't people of faith, Christians included, operating at the level of belief? In other words, right. that's lesser than knowledge. Right. Now, how does he know that we are not operating on the level of truth? What, what's his justification? His justification, his justification to know that we're simply in the level of belief and not truth. His justification is what science and the Bible are, are somehow incompatible. Uh, you know, we need to shut our brains off. You know, logic needs to be put over there while science. If, you know, what I'm saying he doesn't have a justification to know that we are simply operating on the level of belief. Um, for all he knows, we could be operating on the level of truth and we have proper justification for believing to be true the things that we believe. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, I wish I had the quote here, but when he's kind of breaking down his definition, he's got like truth, knowledge, mm -hmm. belief, perception, and then opinion. And these are kind of like yeah. levels of knowledge or kind of on a spectrum right. of knowledge, if you will, with belief being lower than knowledge. But I think what he's missing is that belief is a component of knowledge, just right. like truth is. And so you can have a belief that is tied to the truth and therefore be operating at a level of truth, just, just like you described. Another problem is that when he starts to get into the, when he, he quotes these scriptures, again, you know, uh, that quotes, but he references, you know, John 14, 6, John 6, 29, uh, and 1 John 5, 13. Well, when you look at 1 John 5, 13, these, you know, to, to Adam's point, these authors aren't talking about propositional truth as in belief that something mm -hmm. is the case. Mm -hmm. They're talking about belief in, right? We're that word pissed yep. is, is, is very different things. I'm saying, I can say, again, I believe that it is raining outside. That's different from saying, I believe in my wife to be a faithful wife, right? right. That's belief in, right? So when when First John says, you know, I've written all these things to you, um, to you who believe in the name of the son of God, right? Um, now you're not just believing that his name is is you know Yeshua or something like that. You're, you're believing in his name. You're believing in the person, right? You're putting your trust in the person. That's very different than the way that he you, that he tries to um, you know leverage this scripture against some sort of, of level of prophet, propositional truth. Likewise, you know uh, the work of, of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. You know, that's what John 6 20, 20, uh, says. So when he references John 6 29 in his quote here, he's referencing it in the context of talking about propositional truths, but the authors themselves aren't using the term belief in that sense. Right. They're using it in the sense of trusting in somebody, uh, uh, someone, namely right. Jesus Christ. This is just really sloppy work, man. It's just, yeah. it's just really sloppy. And it's interesting right. too that the Bible doesn't argue for the existence of God, mm -hmm. it assumes the existence of God and says it's foolish to deny it. So that the concept of faith is not meant in scripture to believe in a proposition that you otherwise 
don't know about. It's basically <laughs> trust in the one whom we know and has proven reliable. Of course, the Old Testament is a perfect example of God's faithfulness and the additional reasons why we should today believe that God will always fulfill his promises, so on and so forth. So it's not a, as you, as you mentioned, it's not a belief that, it's a belief in this idea of trust um, in a person who's been reliable, not trust in some abstract and personal proposition that a yeah. God exists somewhere out there. Right. And and real quick on that note, which is, is the point, um, Eli, that we need to get somehow to, to Mr. Goodwin. But as, as Adam was talking too, and I, I remember I was, um, I was preaching somewhere and it was about something about truth, but mm -hmm. I had a realization in, in preparation for that. And that he put John 14 and six, as well as in that quote that, that Adam had up it as though it's a, as though it's a point for his, his propositions that he's stating, but here's, here's what's so amazing to me. When you think, when you look throughout history, you look at every prophet, every guru, every religious leader or whatever, um, Jesus makes an ontologically unique statement, the likes of which has never been made before or after him. And so in that light, I look at John 14 and six different. So most prophets, gurus, religious leaders have claimed to have special access to the truth, special gnosis, right. but none of them claim to be the truth. That right. That, yeah. That distinction is extremely important, extremely powerful. So when you encounter Jesus, you're literally encountering the truest man to ever live. You're encountering personal truth. And that also makes sense for us because we're talking about grounding truths and grounding these things, grounding logic. Well, if we're going to ground moral or ethical truths, they have to be grounded in a person. So this is why mm -hmm. naturalism to me fails when you there's no God in the paradigm there's no transcendent source to atta attach objective moral values to. Right. Hope so they're always right. subjective, right? No. And so it makes sense, not just because the Bible, you know, just that, that we want to quote it that way. It makes sense logically that the truth would be a person mm -hmm. if, now, it, wait, if in fact truth exists. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. I, I got I got to disagree with you there. Uh, you know, Fanatic has something to say to you, brother. <laughs> Cause he covers this in his book, man. I, I hate to tell you, but he, he I saw he, it. He got something for you, dog. He got something for you. He says, <laughs> "I'm being funny." Here's another quote from the book. He says, <laughs> "He said, he says, if you're a Christian, because because he's about, what he's about to do is go into this, you know, setting out definitions, and one of them is going to do is, is give a definition of truth." He says, "If you're a Christian, try to resist, resist the urge to respond with truth is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Why should you resist this for now?" Well, first, truth of the truth of two plus two equals four is quite indisputable. And the truth is that you are reading this sentence right now. Yet neither of those truths are Jesus Christ. So our definition needs to be a bit more specific. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm being I'm trying to be nice, man. But, but seriously, yo. Well, he goes on yeah. to say truth is reality or exact representations of reality. And he later says, you know, whatever the reality is, it is what it is, even if we as human beings never come to grasp it. Reality is true. Now, what's funny is he he chides the Christians, just like you, Alex. He's coming at you, dog. You know what I'm saying? For, for saying that, that Jesus is the truth. Nevertheless, he wants to later on say the reality is true. Now, the funny part about it is if you're going to leave that open, then it, in so much as Jesus is the ultimate reality, then as a Christian, I'm on good grounds to, in that sense, you know, affirm that Jesus is the truth. So if he can make a metaphysical right. claim of this identity relation between reality and truth, right. then don't deprive the Christian of that. And obviously yeah. when Christians say that, you know, I, well, even when Jesus said that he is the truth, he's not talking about propositional truths. Right. He's talking a bit about that, that ultimate reality. So 
again, right. this is your boy throwing out definitions and and all that kind of stuff in just really sloppy ways. Yeah. Um, I think that that are very unfortunate for the reader because I think right. that that he owes his readers more than that. But yeah. So so when we say that Jesus is the truth, we're not saying that Jesus is a proposition. No. Correct. What we would say is Jesus is being God, right? And the, with the triune God is the metaphysical ultimate upon which all derivational facts, facts that are derived from more fundamental things uh, come from. So that in a very, a very profound sense, God is the ultimate ground of reality. There's nothing uh, beyond him and everything else that exists as a creation um, exists because of him. It's defined because of how he's defined it. So it, it is entirely appropriate to call Jesus Christ the truth. And what I uh, recognize in this quote, that was a portion, if you can put that two plus two thing there, that was a portion that I did get to read and it kind of my antennas went up. And this is important, especially for people who watch my channel. And uh, we have a, a big emphasis here on presuppositional apologetics and the importance of avoiding neutrality in thinking, right? Look what he says here. Think in terms, you're a Christian, you have a Christian worldview, you're committed to Christ in your in your worldview perspective. Look what he's asking us to do. And it's the very thing that, you know, I keep telling people to be careful for. Van Til said this, Greg Bonson said this, all of the presuppositional thinkers and Christian thinkers have pointed this out. And I think it's vital to understand. Look what he says. He says, if you're a Christian, try to resist the urge to respond with truth as a person and his name is Jesus Christ. In other words, try to resist the urge to ground truth and reality in the ultimate foundation of our worldview as Christians. <laughs> so try yeah. try to do that. In other words, try to understand truth in a neutral fashion that does not necessitate and require Jesus Christ, the triune God, to be the grounding uh, and metaphysical foundation for that. Again, he's literally asking us to be neutral, which is something that he's not being neutral, nor we, nor shouldn't we be neutral as well. So on, on a very surface level, it's very um, possible to talk about definitions that we could agree on and we can kind of communicate. But when we're talking about the truth or falsity of the Christian worldview, we are talking about paradigmatic issues, worldview issues in which we can't just speak generically and use generic uh, definitions. We need to be very specific because we're talking about foundational issues. So I think that's a very important thing to point out. And two plus two, by the way, equals four. Mathematics are uh, based upon logic. And if we take, for example, the basic law of logic, the law of identity, something is what it is, it's not what it's not. Um, and the law of non-contradiction, a statement cannot be both true and false at the same time in the same way. People do deny those. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the law of identity is denied by some you know, certain philosophical yeah. perspectives. Now, we that's might true. think it's foolish, but we can't just say this is indisputable. In philosophy, everything is disputable. <laughs> everything <laughs> is disputable. So right, we need right, to be yeah. very careful about that. Right. Sorry for rambling there. That kind of no, that's really good. That kind of, no, it's uh, important. That's very important. My antennas went up. <laughs> well, I got uh, I got one more. I think one more slide, and it's a, it's um, something we can all discuss because I want to hear y'all's thoughts on it too. Yeah. Um, Just to give a heads up too, we're we're at the top of the hour, and so we okay. we we will be wrapping things up soon. But if there are some major points that you want to include that we haven't discussed, feel free to introduce them, and we can kind of talk about them, and then we'll wrap things up if that's okay. Okay, yeah, after, well, after Alex's, I'm going to get to the heart yeah, of the matter. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, the four options. So, yeah, yeah I'll be quick because I just want to read this and, and kind of yeah, no show worries. where he, um, once again, it's not really defined. This is not really about terminology on this one. Mm -hmm. um, oh, wait, isn't that up there? 
while you're looking for that, uh, Vocab Malone here says uh, he's going to create and share a playlist later tonight. So if anyone is interested, they can check out uh, The Street Apologist. Look at Vocab Malone on YouTube. Check out his playlist section and see if you can find all of the videos that have been made thus far. So just giving folks a heads up on that. And you okay, just let me know if your slides are ready. And yeah, we'll it's ready. Them. Okay. So, and this kind of goes back to something Adam said earlier, and I, Adam, I, I'll get your thoughts too on this, um, Adam. So he says, there are, however, schools of thought, I don't know who or where or what, but there's schools of thought that see the human mind as an innately having the imprint of universal ideas or categories pressed upon it before we ever encounter the outside world, before our senses feed on any data. I'm just going to pause there for the sake of time. But here, <laughs> here's um, some of the issues. What grounding do these anonymous schools of thought have for suggesting that our immaterial minds could access concepts pertaining to the material world without our presence in that material world. So I don't know if that made sense that he's, he's trying to kind of throw this bait out that some people or some schools of thought, um, some other religions, I don't know, seem to think that there is some imprint that we're born with almost that we were born knowing certain logic or certain things about circles and, and, and different things of that nature, which we all know is just false. We don't really even have to go into depth about this. Babies have to learn everything. There's nothing um, that they really come into the world with a priori um, in that way. So mm -hmm. I don't know what he's really suggesting here or why I kind of know why he's suggesting it, but it also fails on other levels um who determines who determines what those universal ideas or categories uh that we have a priori access to are like what are the things that we that all humans would have that a priori access to and what would those things need to be is it just up to mr goodwin to tell us what those are or or do we all yeah. kind of intuitively know that um is the moral law included in this innate imprint doesn't seem that it is and how could it be and so even things that we consider basic um now such as that the earth revolves around the sun or is that is that innately imprinted so th there's there's so much left in the air it's 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 the biggest case of question begging that i've seen in a while yeah like you you just you just put a thought out and didn't didn't verify it didn't validate it and just left it there so so this is where i wondered if um maybe i don't know if he felt like he was running out of space he didn't want to make the book too long or whatever but but so, so this discussion here comes in the context, and I, I wanted to make a slide as I just kind of ran out of time. I, I just had to read it off of my notes, but I think what he's talking about is the discussion between empiricism and rationalism, yeah. you know, where a rationalist might say that we are not in a sense blank slates when we come into the world, but, you know, we have these, some sort of innate knowledge um, about certain, what he, I think he refers to them as universal ideals or something like that. Yeah. I think he's, I think he's, he's, what he's trying to do is critique uh, rationalism. And what he eventually does, is, as I understand, I think he rejects rationalism. And he says this, he says, quote, um, and, and again, he's talking about in, in um, basically how do we get knowledge, gaining knowledge? He says, quote, this is on page, uh, page 275. As a child, I had unwittingly stumbled upon the realization that the validity of our logic with which we can have knowledge of reality comes to us in two ways, through empirical perception um, in parentheses, what our five senses relate to our minds and rational processing, the reasoning power of our minds working upon the data fed to us by our five senses. 
one can hardly work without the other. And so what he does is he kind of rejects um, rationalism, you know, this notion that there could be some sort of innate knowledge or something like that. And he adopts like this hard empiricism, you know, this idea that um, everything comes down to, in terms of how we gain knowledge, it comes down to experience and more specifically uh, experience uh, through the five senses. Now, the problem is that, again, this is another one of those, um, just, just an interesting way of describing things. So empiric empiricists, uh, those who subscribe to empiricism would generally, as I understand it, give room for not only experiencing things through your sense data, the five senses, but also reflective experience. Yeah. You know? So that would be like those internal experiences like I was talking about earlier with, with you know, having direct access to oneself and then deriving certain truths from that. Mm -hmm. But so they would say that, yeah, everything that we that we know or can know about any given subject um comes to us through experience but again you know they, they'll likely bifurcate between right. uh sense experience and um and reflective experience internally now the problem with him is that he actually you know condenses down to just the the experience and even then experience that is fed to us by the senses you know so essentially without sense data you know we can't know something right now, the problem with that is, uh, and he doesn't spell this out in this book, but I think that leaves open the objection that there are certain things that we can know about the world that transcend our sense data, like, like right. you know, point uh, ma uh, mathematics, you know, Eli, that you right. talked about. There are mathematical truths that we can ascertain through uh, functions of logic that don't map onto the physical world. Like, there's certain things that mathematicians can do with infinities and, you know, manipulating right. those in equations and things like that. And, and, and I, you know, I would argue that infinity is not something that's physically possible you know there's no way that we could sense an infinite number of things you know, physical mm -hmm. things and so i think that i don't know if he was trying to save time or, or what but it, but you know these concepts are kind of sloppily dealt with, dealt with in such yeah. a way that it leaves opens uh, a lot of ambiguity like also if you if you're going to relegate knowledge to that which can be experienced uh through empirical means or simply rational reflection you uh that kind of reminded me of the statement where he spoke about um that physical things in the universe maintain their identity over time that the, mm. how do you know that without universal observation for all we mm. know things don't have the same property from one moment to another you yep. kind of undermine right. uh your your knowledge of the universal fact that according to the law of identity things maintain their identity throughout time and don't change i mean how do you know that's the case if knowledge only comes through um, sensation and experience. We haven't had, no one has universal sensation or universal observations. Course, um, yeah. So again, I think that would be self, self-officiating there. Yeah, I agree. And I wouldn't, I didn't think we were going to get here, but since I, since we're here, I'm going to make a, a real quick quote again, you know, he, he references Stanford encyclopedia, um, a, a philosophical encyclopedia for some of his definitions. So I pulled up in regards to empiricism. I'm just going to quote this right quick. It is also important to note that the rationalist slash empiricist distinction is not exhaustive of the possible sources of knowledge. One might claim, for example, that we can gain knowledge in a particular area by a form of divine revelation or insight that is a product of neither reason nor sense experience. In short, uh, when used carelessly, the labels rationalist and empiricist, um, as well as the slogan uh, that is the title of this essay, rationalism versus empiricism, can impede uh rather than advance our understanding so it seems like he's taking an aim at rationalism or and kind of going the empiricist route but that may not even be a fight worth, worth having but nevertheless you know uh, the main thing about that quote that i want to emphasize is that 
you know, you, you could be an empiricist and still allow for the notion that there are sources of knowledge outside of one's reason or sense experience. Right. And so that's going to go to, you know, somebody like a Calvin, you know, might appeal to the sense of divinitatis, you know what I'm saying, or the witness of the well, Holy Spirit well, and things like I'm, that. I'm curious if he's going to mix together empirical truths and rational truths, how does he overcome the hurdle that is presented to us by Immanuel Kant? Mm. So that, for example, knowledge doesn't come through sensation right. simply without imposing rational categories onto empirical data, right? But then mm -hmm. again, if we are imposing conceptual realities and categories upon the empirical data, are we seeing reality in itself or mm -hmm. as it only appears to us? You see, Immanuel Kant combined uh, rationalism and, and empiricism and found that we have no access to the noumenal. In other words, we have no mm -hmm. access to the yeah. true state of affairs. So if he's trying to mix that, mix those categories, then he still doesn't get to reality about anything. You only, you never see, uh, as Kant says, you never see the thing in itself. You only see what our interpretation of, of those things are, since we must impose, our mind is active in the knowing process and mm, it's imposed mm -hmm. by our rational faculties. But um, someone else might be imposing different categories and understanding things differently. We can never see a tree, for example, in itself. We oh. only see our perception of the tree. Okay, okay. Now, let me, let me go back to something real quick. All right, so if I could share my screen again, because you just brought up a point. I hadn't thought about this. It does reference you said it in the now. book, by the way. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to a quote. Uh, he says, okay. All right. So we, he talks about truth. He says, reality or exact representations of it, whether written, spoken, or otherwise mediated. Okay. And he also says, whatever the reality is, it is what it is, even if we as human beings never come to grasp that reality is truth. Now, to your point, you know, this is how he defines truth and reality. Um, Kant would, would might take him to task on that because the reality is just think about like eyesight for example like I'm, I don't actually see the computer that's sitting in front of me what I see are you know the reflections of you know the light rays and so on and so forth hitting my eyes and you know I'm interpreting it through the lens of my mind if you will you know what I'm saying but there's mm -hmm. I don't see it directly I see it by way of the light rays likewise you can say the same thing about smell any of the five senses you know I'm saying it's mediated right. to us in that sort of indirect way if that's true then we actually never have a direct representation of the world right, right. and if right. we don't have a direct representation of the world then on his definition of truth we can never have truth we can never we can never or at least we can never be we can never have knowledge i'll say because we can never really have justification to say that we really are seeing things or experiencing things as they are and Adam, is distant from us you know in in a way that i think renders his his understanding of truth untenable right. it's also a more fundamental problem uh why should we listen to him? Like, like if, if what he's saying is true, then we shouldn't be listening to you. Like, you know what I'm saying? You cut well, your own feet out. From well, but even you. that, when you say, even if, if what he's saying is true on his view, you can't have truth. So right. you can't have truth. You've refuted you yourself since you'd have to be true and that you don't have truth. It's just, it's, <laughs> right, it's contradictory right. at its foundation. Um, and this is what happens when you remove the absolute, when you remove an ultimate point of reference, there are no standards. You subjectivize everything, all of philosophy, um, that is autonomous and independent of an all-encompassing absolute God runs into the problem known as the egocentric predicament. There's no, there's no way to get outside yourself uh, for an objective perspective. And that's why we start the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It sounds Bible-y, it sounds Christian-y, but that answers the question of getting outside of ourselves. We have one who knows all things, is absolute and ultimate, and reveals himself. Um, you know, it, it can be wrapped up in the simple truth 
of that little song, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. God has revealed himself unmistakably, and uh, we take him at his word. And to reject that, we lose ultimate point of reference. We lose the foundation for science. We lose the foundation for objective moral values and duties. And um, all is sound and fury signifying nothing, as, as uh, Shakespeare says. Um, and that is a conclusion that is drawn not just by Christians, but other philosophers who recognize what you lose when you drop Christianity. Friedrich Nietzsche is a good example mm, of a consistent right. uh, person who acknowledged the role of Christianity in terms of giving us absolute standards and reference points. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's excellent, man. I mean, obviously, uh, God, particularly if we're talking about a being that's maximally great, you know, has all perfections, you know, then he's going to be morally perfect, things like that. He's not going to be engaged in deception. He gives and he can order the world in such a way that we are in contact with truth. But again, if you take that off the table, then and you're just left to the five senses, um, all of which cannot really render certainty for sure. You know what I'm saying? Right. And they really can't even give you, um, I'll, I'll just kind of leave it at that. There's always going to be room for doubt in terms of whether you're sensing things correctly. Right. Um, for, for all we know, this could all be just our imagination. We could be dreaming right now. You, know what I'm saying? And, and, you, know, you, you could be, right? And you wouldn't really know because when you're dreaming, you, you have sense perception of what appeared to be anyway. But I said all that to say, you know, if you take God off the table and you adopt the kind of modality he suggests, then you're really left with, um, I think, just a hyper skepticism. You really just can't know anything. Mm. And if you can't know anything, then, you know, all 300 some pages of his book are really of no use <laughs> because he hasn't communicated anything uh, uh, akin to knowledge. And there's no way that we could know it if he did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, excellent points, gentlemen. Uh, well, we're at the one hour and 16 minute mark. This has been an excellent conversation. Are there any points of uh, summary that any of you would like to uh, mention before we kind of wrap things up here? Yeah, if I can just like, uh, and what I'll probably do is is uh, I'll finish this out. Um, I might- and feel, feel free to to share more slides if you have some other points you want to bring up. That That's fine as well. Great. Well, yeah, I'm just going to do do a couple. Um, and what I'll probably do is explain this further on my channel. Um, if you want to stop by, you know, true idea apologetics. <laughs> but I just want to point out, you know, um, earlier, uh, excuse me, I made, I made this real quick. Um, okay. So, you know, he says, after considering, uh, this is page 276, after considering the preceding chapters, we must ask what implications does all this have for the core beliefs of the Christian faith? and any uh, religious worldview based upon the Judeo-Christian tradition, he says there are at least four pathways forward. So he, he at least puts the at least in there, you know, so he opens the door for, for other um, options. But he himself chose option four, which I'll just read uh, really quick. And then I'm, uh, in terms of um, where he decided to take things, uh, to me, this whole book kind of reads more autobiographical than, than a, a thorough, rigorous, you know, case-making right. type of a thing. It's kind of more so him you know, taking you through his thought pattern uh, in terms of how he arrived. And I think there's some, some obvious missteps I want to address. So um, he believes that based upon, you know, the evidence that he showed in chapters, you know, one through 11, that we have cause to doubt the biblical record. And he, what he believes is finally, we could conclude that even though the writers who compiled the biblical narratives have told an amazingly heart-stirring saga about God and humanity, nevertheless, on the grounds of history, logic, and ultimately truth, um, two concepts there that he didn't define well, uh, the God of the Bible is not a trustworthy source of divine revelation, you know, and so he kind of you know uses this. This is his launching off point to talk about, you know, essentially why he left the faith. Now, um, again, he said that there's at least, you know, four um, options. And I, I'm going to say, man, you definitely missed a spot <laughs> because um, th there's no good reason. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, th there's 
the question for me is, you know, is there any good reason for the reader of this book to follow him in option number four and conclude that the Bible is um, not a trustworthy source of, of divine revelation? Um, obviously, my answer is going to be no. And I think there's at least a couple other options uh, that I want to just go over really quickly. Sure. First of all, um, you know, again, this is kind of the heart of the book. This is where he's trying to get to. You know, so. Um, first of all, I want to make a distinction between um, belief that and belief how. Right. And we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, you know, in reference to believing in versus believing you know, that something is the case. One can confirm, affirm that scripture is true, even if the, in the face of uncertainty in terms of how particular passages of it are true. Right. So you can affirm that scripture is true, even if you don't have every single answer in terms of how it is the case. And this is not special pleading. This is something that we employ all the time. I can I can't tell you how the light switch works in this room that I'm sitting in right now. I'm saying, but I can affirm that if I switch it on and off, it's going to do what it does, right? right? So knowledge of how something is the case is not, it shouldn't be conflated with knowledge that something is the case. Mm. Likewise, even in science, I'm thinking about uh, John Polkinghorne, who is a theoretical physicist, credited for uh, discovering um, quarks, you know what I'm saying, the existence of quarks long before there was any independent evidence that they existed. And there was years that went by where he was able to kind of do his mathematical equations and, and suggest that, hey, these things called quarks exist. And he had, uh, on, on those grounds of, of the math, he had sufficient grounds to say that they do. Nevertheless, they weren't really discovered until, you know, you know however many years later. You know, um, so again, he had knowledge that something was the case, even if he couldn't give you a thorough A to Z uh, account of how. Um, and even with uh, Brady's pet, uh, theory, evolution, right? Um, can evolutionists answer every single question about how evolution is true? Can't even uh, tell you how life got started. <laughs> you dead right at yeah. the beginning. And that's why right. that's why evolutionists tend to separate those as separate questions. Well, right. we have evidence that evolution occurs, but we, you know, a bio, abiogenesis, we don't talk about how life got right. started because that's too speculative. I mean, Richard Dawkins says we might have been, you know, aliens might have implanted us here. I mean, yep. you can't just <laughs> connect those. You know, you can't say, let's not talk about and the beginning, but let's talk about all this other stuff that happened upon which depends on the kind of beginning that, Thank that, you. Right, that was there. Or the yeah. existence of information, you know, how that, yeah. that got off the ground, you know, things yeah, like yeah. that. You know, they can't answer all those questions, uh, you know, linkages and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, you know, people like himself have such confidence in it, such that they would uh, leave the faith. Now, my whole point is, again, if all these examples are, are legitimate for others, then certainly we're not uh, special pleading to apply to ourselves. So we can affirm that scripture is true, even if we uh, don't have certainty on all the passages in terms of how they could be the case. With that in mind, you know, and I'm just going to read these. Sure. Um, because I know we're running out of time. So I'm just going to you know read a couple and I'll get back to it later. Um, so option six, you know, I'm just going to read off the screen. You know, one could, um, I'm sorry, one more preface. I apologize. I'm giving options that different Christians would appeal to. I, I know this won't be palatable for all theological traditions. Each, each of these options may not, but I'm just kind of listing out ways that Christians could potentially respond. Okay. So, uh, option six, uh, one could begin with a cumulative case for theism using arguments that are independent from yet consist consistent with, uh, biblical claims. Uh, for example, such arguments might include the Kalam cosmological argument, argument from morality, argument from consciousness, etc. And then having established theism, one might appeal to an argument from the resurrection of Jesus to further establish theism and demonstrate that God can be specifically identified as Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Now, upon considering Jesus' resurrection, one might take it to be a stamp of validation on his, cl on his claims 
in ministry. Thus, one may conclude from Jesus' self-disclosure, prophetic context, and historical evidence that he is God. Given that Jesus is God and taught that the Old Testament scriptures are inerrant, one has good reason to affirm that the Old Testament is inerrant. Having laid the groundwork for the um, inerrancy of the Old Testament, plus the deity and authority of Christ, one could argue further for the reliability of the New Testament. Um, oh, I got something in my way. Oh, okay. By noting the implications that follow from these facts, right? Namely, that Jesus uh, handpicked the disciples, and you know, you have the Holy Spirit um, who is who is said to empower and affirm you know the message coming forth in that first generation of uh, of Christians, you know, over which those disciples had oversight. So, if if you have the Holy Spirit witnessing. And so on. Um, there's a good reason to think that what's coming out of the New Testament should at very least be reliable. And then I would argue in error as well, given what's mm -hmm. attested to in it. So there's a way to get to um, inerrancy even that doesn't require one to have this exhaustive knowledge and, and answer for every single conundrum in the Old and the New Testament. You can have rational grounds based upon arguments mm -hmm. right, that get you there deductively. Whereas if you know, it seems that, that Brady wants to narrow the conversation to the inductive i'm saying working from mm -hmm. the ground up right. right one last thing uh just one other option that he hadn't considered and again i'm going to go over this much uh more deeply um on my channel but in so much as jesus uh handpicked the disciples for establishing the church uh post-resurrection commanded them to teach uh the truth as he taught them in matthew 28 18 through 19 and the holy spirit empowered and affirm them, one can e reasonably conclude the church's founding documents written within the period that those disciples had influence and oversight to be reliable, thus substantiating our trust in them as authoritative. Against the backdrop of Jesus' authority and his commissioning of the disciples upon whom the church is built, when the New Testament authors commend us, commend to us that the New Testament texts are inspired, one would have rational grounds to hold some, some form of doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy, thereby undergirding the conviction that scripture teaches uh, what scripture teaches is true. Uh, this option leaves room for the Christian to affirm that scripture is true while taking critical biblical studies seriously as they pursue how scripture is best to be understood. You know, so that just kind of, you know, finish it out um, in my last point there. So I think that's my last slide. Now, last thing I'll say is even if you don't want to take the cumulative case route, you could also uh, either supplement it or replace it with some sort of reformed epistemology, you know, wherein, um, you know, God himself, or you can say, but the, the census divinitatis uh, attests to us, you know, that um, that the scriptures and the, the cardinal truths of Christianity are true, uh, to use the words of Alvin Plantinga. And this would be actually consistent with empiricism as, um, as, I, as I read earlier, you know, there's some source of knowledge that is apart from reason and um, our sense experience. And so you can take the warrant to Christian route. You can say that we have warrant based upon uh, the witness of the Holy Spirit and based upon uh, the sense of defendant titles or however you want to go there. And in so much as that's the case, there's rational grounds. So there's a model for affirming inerrancy uh, and being rationally sound in doing mm -hmm. so. So I know that was quick. I'll have to unpack that later, but you know, I just want to throw that out. I don't have any more slides, Eli. So <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. But I'll say one thing because this, this, this four part false dichotomy that he sets up at the end is kind of like that's where he's going so i want to say a couple things so sure. i'm just going to read for everybody it says option one the bible over everything so here he's a, he's saying well these are the people he probably put you in there eli or me and all of us oh you you guys know the bible doesn't align with reality but you're going to stick with it no matter what that's that group right, right. and then he says well, option two it's not you it's me so it's 
we understand the Bible correctly and y'all just need to understand how we understand it so that you can understand that there's no contradiction. Option three, bless this mess, he called it, which is kind of funny. But he said, um, basically, all these Christians, we know it's horrible. We know the Bible's garbage, but we're just going to pray God bless it anyway and hope <laughs> it works out. <laughs> and then he says, option four, as Adam just alluded to. So once again, this is why that we started with definitions, because all four of those options are are set up as straw men, are set up as false dichotomies right. based on a faulty foundation of defining logic, belief, trust, faith, like every word that you needed to get to that point, he, he misdefined or didn't define. So that's how he got where he's going. We just wanted to, to show everybody that and just uh, make sure that that we all understand. Yeah, I know your audience understands. There's sure. no there's no mess to bless. That's right. <laughs> God got it right. There's a there's a beautiful consistency to the Christian worldview. And I'll say one last thing on, on, sure. on Tuesday. It's be about 45 minutes, but I'm going to go in a lot of depth on what you just said, Eli, that let's look at the consistency internally in the scripture. Let's look at um, not as primary, but let's look at the consistency, even at science and how it correlates with the scripture. Excellent. Yeah, and likewise, I'll be you know hopping on probably later this week as well to kind of go more in depth about those options, you know, because I think that again, this is the punchline of his whole book. It's, it's, it's kind of that's the direction he took, and I'm saying that one can um, uh, have have rational grounds to affirm uh, the scriptures. You know what I'm saying in ways I think he just flat out didn't consider. You know, so we'll we'll get we'll get to right. that. Well, excellent. Well, guys, this has been an excellent conversation, and I hope that people will check out. Um, the rest of the videos that are in response to the various chapters of the book, um, Let There Be Gaslight. Once again, also check out Adam Coleman's YouTube channel, True ID, and Alex McElroy's Relentless Pursuit of Purpose. If you have not yet subscribed to their uh, YouTube channel, sometimes I say, stop demonstrating the truth of total depravity and go, go <laughs> and uh, and subscribe and support I like that. Uh, their channel. Right? <laughs> That's hilarious. I That's recommend funny. their their content. So. <laughs> Gentlemen, I would like to thank you so much for coming on and giving me of your time and um, and your fellowship as well. And so um, I'd love to have you guys back on in the future to kind of cover some a different topic, if that would be OK. Would that be OK? Of course. Absolutely. absolutely. All right. Honored. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And vice well, versa. Well, absolutely. absolutely. I'd totally yeah, be down for it. I love I love hopping on people's channels. Actually, I, I have to get going only because I need to hop on. um Matt Slick's channel. He's having uh, a, a oh okay, all right, yeah, a live stream there. So I was gonna hop on there, but um, I definitely want you guys back, and I highly recommend you guys to check out those other videos that will be um, created in a playlist on Vocab Malone's channel, The Street Apologist. So definitely check that out. Well, gentlemen, once again, thank you so much, uh, everyone who's been listening and behaving in the comments. I appreciate it. <laughs> right. I, I'm happy of my comment section. There are a couple yeah, yeah. of you know things yeah. that every now and then, you know, but uh, my comment section on my videos are pretty well behaved, and I do appreciate the respectful interaction, guys. So, oh uh, well, that's it for this episode, guys. Until next time, take care and God bless. Thank you for watching. Peace, peace.